the time I hear people suggesting that they'd like to change. They read the self-help books, they take workshops and classes, they go into counseling or therapy, they talk with their friends, they complain, but they don't always change. Even people thinking about doing a marathon, they think about it, they don't actualize it. 95% of all the things we think about, we do not actualize. I believe we can change that. And I believe we start by just saying to ourselves, just do it. If you just do it, the momentum of having the courage to do something, to take that first step, creates a second step, creates a third step. But if you never have the courage to take the first step, nothing ever happens. So what I want to do now is show you, and don't worry about not being able to read this, I'll read this for you, show you some of the ways that you may find beneficial to change your life or at least change some of the circumstances in your life or change some of the ways that you view life or yourself. Most people, when they have a crisis, and we all have crisis, they look at everything as a breakdown. Helplessness, hopelessness, despair, it's a breakdown. Problem in their relationship, problem with their family, problem with their health, problem they wake up one morning, they find a lump in their breast, a swollen lymph node, night sweats, they go to work, they're having trouble communicating, they don't know what to do. And immediately their whole body's immune system becomes affected. They literally start breaking down. All systems, everything you think, your body correspondingly manifests physically at a biochemical level. And that's not positive when it's a crisis. I'm suggesting that instead of breaking down, we break through. Use everything that is negative to your advantage. The rule of thumb in this life is that anything that doesn't kill you strengthens you. And that's why when I talk with people who've had cancer, AIDS, heart disease, who chose a course of action that has healed them, today they're healthier than they were before the disease, and the disease was actually healing crisis. It was an event that allowed them to say, thank God I was sick enough that I was forced into change and I'm happy that I survived my change. Today, I will never allow myself to go through that pain and misery and suffering again. I will learn the first signals. I won't have to go through 1,500 red lights before I realize I'm about to hit a wall people start to pay some attention to what they're doing, the very process. But we don't pay attention to what we do, and as a result, we do something and then it's done. We say something and it's out. And then we suddenly realize, how did that affect someone else? But if you don't care, you just feel you have to say something or you do something, there's a consequence to everything. And I'm concerned that we're not aware of how to control the consequences because we're not able to control the feelings. Or we're so control the feelings, we don't express them appropriately. So almost all of our actions are inappropriate to how we really feel as a person. If you were ideally happy, ideally healthy, would you do the things and say the things that you do? No. <clears throat> it's like a person that goes out drinking one night. I come from the South, where there's not a lot of <clears throat> hard whiskey consumed, certainly not uh, where I came, but beer was. But it was a thing where guys would uh, come into a beer joint. I know because my father owned one. 
and it was a tavern, and he owned it mainly because uh, it was a place to socialize. People come in and spend the whole Saturday there watching the ball games and reminiscing. And I, I learned some important lessons about life. I would see people coming in there in their mid-20s who had been athletes, and every Saturday of my entire life that I can recall, they gave the same stories. They said the same stupid stories. And what was amazing is when they'd start to talk, the whole place would be absolutely silent, like they were hearing this for the first time in awe. <laughs> like, really? No, I, I've said this 300 times, but I'm going to say something different this time. There was never anything different. And I'm sitting there thinking, I'm bored with this. I can say it better than he can, and I won't miss a word. It's like watching the same movie over and over again. And I used to do that because I was an usher in a theater, all right, until I was fired. Uh, because a lot of people couldn't afford, so I just, at nighttime, I'd let them all in for free until the boss came in one night and saw the theater filled, absolutely filled, and no money. He said, what is this? I said, well, they can't afford. Why should they miss a movie? You know, you didn't need the extra money. You're a rich person. Then I found out about rich people, you know, and they're very insecure about any money that they still don't have. Somehow rich people think there's a, a shortage of money in the world. <laughs> and if they don't get the last of it, they're going to be deprived of their future. I was also fired from a hamburger place. That was a good omen. It was the first one that opened up my hometown, and I went to work there. And the owner was a very negative person. So what I would do is every time someone come in to order a hamburger, I was a vegetarian, I put money under the hamburger. And I just figured it'd be kind of fun watching me eat the, <laughs> eat the money. <clears throat> now you see why I don't live in West Virginia. <laughs> I would have been shot had I still lived in West Virginia. <laughs> and then one day the owner came in, just happened to come in when this woman had bitten into this hamburger and pulled the money out and had eaten off the serial number and asked me, could she still cash this with the serial number she'd eaten? And the, of course, the owner asked about eating a $5 bill on a hamburger that cost 25 cents. I was fired. I didn't stay in jobs very long where I grew up because I was always complaining about something. I worked at a parking lot until I started to realize it was very corrupt. Why a $2 million parking lot where there were no cars? It just didn't make sense. But the politicians in my hometown had a name for that. And uh, I had a name for it, and it wasn't the same name. And uh, when I went to expose that, I was fired too. Uh, but I learned about people, and I learned that everybody in my hometown lived their life after high school, after they graduated, as if they were in a time warp where time stood still on the day of graduation. I never heard a person ever, ever talk about a thing that occurred after high school, except monotony and boredom. Their life was exciting before. And yet those that went to college, they stopped talking about life after college. And so you would hear a guy, to this day, if you went home, you would hear that same guy talk about the basket he made that won a game, and everybody would still be quiet, and they'd be drinking their 15 or 20 you know, beers throughout an afternoon, and all end up with these beer bellies and prostate cancer and large prostates, right? And, and all puffy and pasty and rotted teeth and uh, miserable and high blood pressure and high triglycerides and depressed and divorced and uh, life going nowhere and thinking that's completely normal. That's the way life should be because it's always been that way because there's no other model. 
because no one has changed and stayed there to live to talk about it. So it's, it's a way that I learned about people who are growing and people who are not, and people who feel comfortable around people who are not growing, and people who feel very uncomfortable around someone who is changing. And why you have to be aware that when you start your process of change, don't expect everybody to feel thrilled by your change, your revelation, your new insight, your new body, your new mind. They're not going to. In all likelihood, they're going to intentionally try to make you feel a particular way. And I'm going to show you why when we get to this up here. Let's start just by doing it. Let's have a whole new beginning to our life. No excuses, no regrets, no blame. The only thing you can control in this world is right now. All right? But let's say, for argument's sake, we want to do something a little different. We want to put our life on trial. I'd like for you to keep a diary, and in the diary, I'd like for you to assume for a moment that you have been brought to trial. You're going to be calling witnesses on your behalf to testify about the benefit of your life but you're also going to be able to call to the stand to challenge them, everyone who had a role in your life, your mother, father, brothers, sisters, aunts, uncles, religious leaders, school teachers, friends, best friends, worst friends, employers, coworkers. They're gonna testify not just under common law, but under spiritual law, where they cannot lie. Now think of what would be done if you had to write a screenplay about your life, and it's one of the ways of therapeutically dealing with your life that I think helps release people from the limitations of the life we live. When you put yourself up on trial and you have a judge, you have a jury, but the difference is the judge and the jury are unconditionally balanced. They cannot be motivated by any of the courtroom dramatics they, excuse me, they deal with issues only. What would you be charged with? How would you charge yourself? You want to really make it interesting. In each of the characters, place each of the characters who were in your life. If your father or mother were the prosecuting attorney and you were sitting in the defendant's box, how would they challenge you? How would they look at you? What charge could they bring against you? Were you a good son, a good daughter? Good by what standards? And then you're going to turn around and you're going to be your own defense. And how would you defend yourself? Or how would the silent voice of life defend you? Imagine this. Imagine that we are all spiritual beings. Do you believe we are spiritual beings? Yes. You do? All right. Do you believe that there is life before life or life after life? Do you? Who does not? Okay, you don't. Okay. You have a brain. Okay? Right now your body is processing. You have not told it how to process any of the things it's processing. You've not conditioned yourself to process 
the, uh, right now the phagocytes, lymphocytes, leukocytes, red blood cells, seven million red blood cells are coming into existence and going out of existence every second, right? 64 trillion plus or minus cells are working in perfect harmony. You didn't tell it to do any of that. In fact, even when you do things against it, it still has enough in, innate knowledge that it will rebalance in spite of you. You smoke, it'll speed up the process of healing the lungs. If you take too much sodium, the kidneys will try flushing out. If you don't take enough calcium, the kidneys will help bring in more calcium. All these things are done in finite ways without your knowledge. If the physical matter of your body is able to function, it's only because you are a manifestation of five energies, electrical, chemical, osmotic, physical, right, and thermal. So if you went outside and it's 100 degrees, you went outside and it's zero, your body will still stay at the exact same internal temperature. How in the world can all these five energies exist in complete harmony, creating a life energy, if we know that energy cannot be created? The law of physics alone, forget any spiritual feelings, any metaphysical feelings, any etherical feelings, the laws of basic physics dictate that energy cannot be created nor destroyed. In all genetic engineering, we're starting off with the premise that we have a life form that we are manipulating but we have never created life. We have never created one single cell, not one cell we created. We have manipulated the creation of cells into new forms, altered forms, never created life. We've never created energy. We only manipulate it in its different manifestations, but we had to have energy to create energy. You have to have an electrical current to turn on a light, but you couldn't create the electrical current if it didn't exist. You can only use it. When you die, everything is there. Your heart, brain, lungs. The only thing that's gone is the energy. Where did it go? Where did it originate? What you were could not have existed prior to conception if you didn't believe that we are continuing energy. You could not have energy exist with all the knowledge of knowing what it does unless it had a consciousness. All the things that inherently allow us to protect ourselves, to function, and to exist is because of an innate energy. You can call it consciousness, superconsciousness, spirit, soul, whatever you wish to call it. It had to precede the physical life. Otherwise, the physical life would be chaotic. There is a Gaia theory that all life on Earth is integrated, interrelated, and has a balance. Even when we're not aware, there is a balance. We are no different. As long as we obey the, the basic law of life, which is to respect the life we have and to honor it, then we maintain health. With health is balance, balance is wholeness, wholeness is happiness and our bliss. It is when we get away from honoring the natural energies of life, the disease process begins. And as we process disease, we do so out of ignorance, arrogance, indifference. We take ourselves away from balance and wholeness into illness. 
Disease is a process, wellness is a process, and life is a process. That's why the brain is still growing no matter how old a person is. You can learn new things. We used to think the brain stopped. Why? Because so many senior citizens stopped growing. They stopped reading. Do you know the average person never reads a single book after high school the rest of their life? Yes. And those that do read only do read one a month. So you stop using. You stop using muscle it atrophies. You stop using your spirit, your heart. You stop using your emotions. You stop using your intuition. You lose touch with it. You no longer trust it. Why is it that every mother in the world throughout history, no matter where she's born and how distant she is, all of them will approach their baby bonding in the same way? How does a mother know instead of yelling at the baby to coo it, to coddle it, to hold it? Now, you'll say that's instinct. What then is instinct but the natural design of the consciousness to self-preserve, protect, and nurture? If it didn't, you would end up with a dysfunctional baby. No matter what intellectually you gave it, you would end up with something that does not function properly emotionally. Look at the English. <laughs> Look at the royal family. Now that is a sad state. Actually, I happen to have a lot of respect for Prince Charles. He made the mistake of trying to speak out, unfortunately. But he's got a brain and a heart, and he's got a good idea about their society, but nobody listens. The trouble is, and I'm, I'm, of course I'm making a, a joke about it, but for a long time in a certain element of that society, it was considered acceptable to have a nanny raise you. You weren't bonded with your own parents, and fathers never bonded, never. So you grew up detached. And what you're detached from, you spend your whole life trying to find. And frequently, you will try to find it in other people. And if you try to find that in other people, you end up in codependent relationships. And that creates dysfunction. But when you find that in someone like American Indian or the Bushmen of the Kalahari where the mothers carry their babies for a couple of years and the baby's always a part of everything, all the communication, then you feel naturally bonded. You feel a part of. You feel connected to and whole. You've been accepted. There is a trust. When you are swinging a tiny little child, the child is helpless. The child is vulnerable. The child trusts. Now, if you do not betray that child's trust, if you honor the child's trust with your unconditional love, that child will grow up trusting themselves and trusting other people and taking chances, not being afraid of being vulnerable. But if you smack the baby, if you correct the baby, if you spend most of your life trying, like Buzzy did, trying to say no to every... <laughs> See, you shouldn't open your mouth, Buzzy. He said he says no to his kids his whole life. Now he's gone through a detox. Now he says yes. Of course, they've all been in Bellevue for the last five years. Lots of luck, Buzzy. <laughs> they hate you, Buzzy. <laughs> no, in point of fact, they now appreciate him in a, in a very special way. Otherwise, they had to kill him. I didn't want to tell you that. Uh, uh, that child will never trust again because when you're very vulnerable and you've been hurt, you're helpless. You're, you're not in power and control in your own life. You've been, you've been affected. 
Think of every little boy, for instance, that's told to go out there and be this special athlete. And you go out there and you got this big mitt and, and uh, you got a big ball and, and you're terrified you're going to let your father down. You're not, if you weren't, had the pressure of your father, you'd pick it up and you'd play and you wouldn't be afraid to fall down, make mistakes. It would be a part of your own process. But you're not doing it for you, you're doing it for him. And he is the only God that you know. And he becomes the Old Testament God, a God of wrath with his eyes, with his expression, with his, ah, oh, he dropped. He doesn't have to say anything. It's what he does. And now you feel that you, you've let him down. You no longer feel protected. You no longer feel that you can be vulnerable. And in your mind, in the recess, you say, someday I'm going to be big enough and strong enough that I'll never let anyone hurt me again. And then you become a lawyer. <laughs> or a brain surgeon or an FDA commissioner or a politician and what happens is we manifest either one of opposites either we go to the extreme and become so hostile so defensive so dynamically projecting that no one controls us, we control everyone and everything, or we take the opposite. We become very hidden. We disguise everything. We're terrified to expose ourselves to any thought, least off anyone would think, that we are, are vulnerable. We will not allow anyone to see our vulnerability, so we don't try anything, we don't do anything, we take no chances, we don't speak up even when we see things that are not right. We disguise that from our mind and eyes, and we say, I don't see anything, don't hear anything, it's not my problem, I want to stay away. Now, most will take that approach because it is a safer approach. It doesn't require as much risk. Those are the two manifestations of what happens when we become the wrong person early in life to please someone else. That affects the energy that was naturally there, that allowed to have nourished and been open would have had a life of constant development, constant exploration. Remember, the mind and brain are not the same. We're born with a brain that is allowed to cognitively and intellectually develop. We're born with a mind that is complete. Everything that you need at any time in your life to understand your own healing process is innately in you. You never have to teach it, it knows what to do. There is no professor of biochemistry, immunology, pathology, hematology on earth that in one lifetime could understand what happens in one second in your body. And it does so by mechanisms that by studying the cell we'll never understand because even the cell tells us only what is happening, it does not tell us how it knows to do it. That's the energy. Now, if we can then just still with, stick with basic science, we know that we're born with an energy. The energy is life. That the only thing that's gone when life is gone is energy. That since we cannot create energy, that the creation of energy has to have been something that is primordial. It is part of the infinite and timeless. And since time and reality are not synonymous, then we cannot place a time at which energy and life started. You can say it was with the Big Bang, but what preceded the Big Bang? If matter was there before the Bang, then life had to occur before matter. Then there is a consciousness of which we are merely part of the, part of the protégés. 
And those people who go through life honoring it are people who live in bliss. We will look at a yogi going from town to town who owns nothing and has to offer, ask for offerings for food or shelter, but is living in a greater sense of balance with life than people with so much of the fortunes of life, materialism of life, who have nothing to offer beyond that. So who is the wiser and who better understands their own life? We've been giving the wrong messages. So that's how we justify life. But what would happen then is if you have to honor that if your cell knows what to do, then it has a consciousness. If your body knows what to do, it has a consciousness. And all of us, all of us know that we are affected by something we were not conditioned to believe or, or to identify, and that is compassion. We're not taught compassion. There's no classes in compassion, but we all have it. You have it. You weren't taught to be compassionate but you have compassion, that is the heart. That is the natural feeling. You see, when you unclutter and peel away and open up all this conditioned self, inside there's a light, and in that light there is the real self. And the real self has everything we need for healing. And that's what all these different seekers and, and sages and, and great minds throughout history, whether it was Christ, or Spinoza, whether it was Gandhi or Buddha, uh, all of the great minds have always told us, look for the truth within yourself. The healing is within. All the different religions, and yet there's one God. There's one consciousness. And yet we separate ourselves, all thinking that ours is unique and special and the best and excluding everything else. If God were around with us right now in this room, would he say, Judaism is better or less than Catholicism? No. No. And yet, if we're all supposed to believe in something, why do we all live such separate and very distinctly isolated existences? So think of what would happen then if just on a purely scientific basis, you could not define life except as energy and its manifestations. Then you have to acknowledge that life is consciousness, consciousness is energy, and energy has preceded us. So even in the conception of life, what you are conceiving is a life process. And that's why even when mothers are in the process of developing the life, their consciousness will directly affect the baby's psyche. For instance, mothers who didn't want to have the child end up with children who feel rejection complex. Parents who talked about abortion but didn't do so end up with frequently dysfunctional children who spend their whole life almost in a, a regressive emotion, never feeling that they are loved or bonded because it's what is felt, not just what is said. Remember, the word is only the ex physical expression of what has already been anticipated or thought. Now, since thoughts are energy, anything you think, you can project. Have you ever in your life had a feeling about someone and then they called or something? Has that ever happened? Anyone that ever happened to? Have you ever been with someone and knew what they were going to say and then they said it? Has that ever happened to you? Do you think that's a coincidence? No. 
They could have said buttermilk, but you know what they were going to say and it wasn't buttermilk. <laughs> That's the connection. I had a call today. As, uh, who was with me today who witnessed this? Kevin McCrary. I don't know if Kevin's in the back room someplace. I got a call today from a man about sprouting. And it had to do with a woman who wanted to learn sprouting. It was one of those out of the blue calls. When I hung up, the next call was the woman's mother. Out of the clear blue. Never spoke to her, didn't know her. Didn't know the woman. How in the world, since I've never heard from either of these people in my life, is there a line drawn between two people both talking about the same person within the same minute? Is that coincidence? It's not coincidence. There are no coincidences in life. There are times when I know that the energy is very high, very intense, and that something's going to happen that day. And when it does, I get on a roll. I'll make all the calls I can. I put out the energy because it just feeds on itself, very positive. And every, every call, something generates. It's when you're almost just like super firing out positive energy and you're connecting all over the place with people. Things start to happen where it would be no, things are yes, doors closed, doors open. That's when we're really open to ourselves. Our whole experience is open. Our process is open. And for people who are sick, that's when the greatest healing occurs. You're opening yourself up to healing. I've seen a lot of these things in my travels throughout the world in search for real healers. And that will be in our next workshop. It won't be in this one when I'm, I'll be talking about in search of the real healers and healers within. But it taught me something. It taught me that if I can think a thought and if I believe that I can project, my thoughts are going out. When I give a lecture, when I talk on the radio, I'm sharing more than words. I'm sharing an energy. And that's why certain people will feel energy and feel the presence of other people. You know when you're in a room with someone who's dynamic, you feel their energy. Even if they say nothing, you feel it. Either positive or negative, you feel it. So if I live a life with the idea that giving presence to everything I do and say is a life energy, something that I can't physically see, but just for argument's sake, let's say that if I am energy, then the whole universe is conscious energy. Then everything I am is merely a manifestation of everything that is already. Therefore, my thoughts, my deeds, my actions are born by witness. And that is the witness that I have to be responsible to, not just in my day-to-day -day activities. Then when I do the same things, say the same things, would you? If you knew everything that you were going to say and do would be witnessed, would you act the same way? Would you talk the same way? I don't think so. Then imagine that that is your judge and jury, the silent witness of your life. So they know everything. You can't lie. So you have to be very honest. Then try. Try, if you can, to put yourself on trial. <clears throat> for your life to see how you would judge your life and others would judge you if you had to be completely honest about everything. Sometimes we will find that we've lived, lived a life that we wanted to or we can feel very good about it. Why do this? 
because frequently we will understand something intellectually, but we don't know how to get rid of it. Okay, so you've gone to analysis, you've figured out that this happened because of this, and your mother did this, or father did that, and you're still walking around with all this anger, all this resentment, and you're still making excuses why you're not getting on with your life, you're not staying on your diet, or you're not talking nicely about someone, or you're still bitching and still bad-mouthing, still gossiping, because, because, because. It's because you have not learned forgiveness. How to forgive. The art of forgiving is the process of releasing us from what has held us back from actualizing our own life. When we can forgive, we can grow. If you cannot forgive, you cannot grow. You're tied to that which you have not acknowledged a release from. But there is a way of forgiving where we understand that we are all, in effect, victims. If your parents did not do what you needed them to do to make you feel good about who you are, maybe they were doing the best they knew because that's how they were treated. And almost always how they were treated is how they're going to treat you. If you were denied love and, and kindness and openness and positiveness, it's because they were denied it. So in effect, when you are judging your parents, you have to understand that they too were victims. Happy, balanced people don't give anger, hatred, negativity, and abuse to other people. You have to be dysfunctional to do that. You have to be imbalanced. You have to be in pain to do that. So what you're doing, you're transferring your pain to another person. You're creating pain in them. Happy people are not going to make you feel bad. They're not going to denounce you. They're not going to hold you back. They're not going to manipulate you. They're not going to control you. But when they've been controlled and they've been manipulated, then they're going to do the same to you. They're passing it on. They have no other way of dealing with life. You have to understand that. So you were the victim, they were the victim, and their parents were the victims, and on and on. When you recognize that we are all victims, then you can recognize that what they did was out of ignorance and their own helplessness. That allows you to forgive them, because then the forgiveness is not tempered by anger. There is a compassion. And if you cannot forgive with compassion, then there is no forgiveness. And that's why people still walk around with such bitterness about everything and everyone that's hurt them. And they use that as a justification for being cynical and bitter. And so they continue being cynical and bitter. So intellectually, they know better. I wondered growing up in the South why so many educated people were still racist. And I would debate the issue. When I was 10 years old, I was debating the issue. I did. I remember people coming over to my father's house. and My father was like this Will Rogers character, a very gentle man and very wise and a philosopher and a, a judge and uh, always giving to people. And he, he would hold court sometimes at night in our house. Didn't want to get down to the courthouse. And, and he never liked to have anyone arrested. He'd work things out. I'd sit on the steps and watch how he'd work things out when people had been fighting the domestic violence and all that. And, and he had a, even when they had raided the whorehouses, and that was great to watch that. That was a super tough. Jump down the steps and watch that. <laughs> and uh, he'd say, I'll never forget him. There's a woman named Mabel Mackey who was the madam of this house in our hometown. Like, we're not supposed to have a whorehouse in our hometown, but we did, of course. And uh, right next to the courthouse, of course, 
right? And in beside the police station and the courthouse of the whorehouse, right? In this highly religious small town. And he'd say, well, he said, I could lock you up, but then you'd just come back out again. He says, instead, I want you to give all the women that work for you, make sure they get complete medical examinations, give them all a month paid vacation. Remember he was doing that. And because I asked him, I said, why, and I was about 16 at the time, I said, why didn't you just close her down? He says, if I close her down, which is what the preachers will want, of course, they'll go visit her too, uh, then she'll open up someplace where she'll be taking in women who are not getting their checkups, who'll be passing disease, who'll be robbing people, who'll be getting unwanted pregnancies, and then they're going to be victimized even more. He said, at least this way, you're protecting as much as you can the women. And again, this is 1960 and, uh, or 1958, around there. It was very progressive thoughts back in that time. I learned a lot about human nature through some of these things, but I also learned that anyone who couldn't trust themselves never trusted anyone else. And they lived very cloistered lives. No one ever forgave anyone. They kept it inside. Their whole life they kept this anger and pain inside, always resenting everybody and everything behind them. So first and foremost, you do the, your life on trial to see how you come out, playing each of the different roles and having everyone else play a different role to see what the issues would be. A lot of stuff comes out when you do this, if you write it out. Now, what causes us to feel and behave? All right. Let's, we're going to deal with positive feelings and negative feelings. For instance, if you feel accepted, it's a positive emotion. Something causes you to feel accepted. If you feel secure, what generally causes you to feel secure? What? What? Good self-esteem. What else? Love. Appreciated. Yeah. What else? Feeling comfortable makes you feel uh, secure. How about calm? What creates calm? Security. Security creates calm. What else? Feeling at peace. If you feel at peace, you feel calm. A sunset creates a calm. Why does a sunset or a sunrise or watching the waves or watching fields of, of clover or hay, uh, why does that create calm? Why? It's, it's spiritual, it's natural, it's a part of the natural rhythms. It doesn't request anything of us. It doesn't condemn us, it doesn't demand from us. It simply is something that is eternally processing life. That's essential. What allows us to feel free? Healthy control. Choices, choices we're able to act on. What allows us to feel happy? Huh? Satisfaction. 
The child within us allows us. When the child comes out and plays, life is a big playground. Everybody's there to be played with. We don't play with people anymore. We become too protective. We don't like people in our face. Get out of my face. <laughs> We're creating an image all the time. We're creating a disguise all the time. We're asking someone to believe what we want them to believe about who we are so we can continue to be accepted. And that's the only reason we do this. So when we have the idea that we feel happy, we feel playful, we feel these things is because we are in a certain state of mind and we're feeling and behaving that way. So the child within is the happiest of all people because the child doesn't mind falling down, getting back up. The child can play, the child can make mistakes, the child can, can learn and unlearn, the child can change, the child can grow. The adult man or woman can't. There's no fun. Men and women aren't fun. Did you ever notice that? They are boring, serious. I mean, especially on the Upper West Side. God, high Marxist, communist, lesbian, anti-feminist, whatever. How are you in your gray Simonese army outfit with your Molotov cocktail and your cheap wine and your Maoist handbook? You want to go out and have some fun? We'll watch a bonfire while a capitalist burns. Sounds like a person. Something like that. Upper East, Upper East Side Jewish intellectual staying home and reading from some long book all night. Very strange the way we enjoy ourselves in New York. Now in California, they're out throwing Fisbees, having great sex, you know, eating uh, sprout sandwiches or something. Not New York. Very different, even where we live and where we socialize. We're always trying to project. I had a party. I had a dance party. This is about two years ago. And it was interesting because a lot of people came just having a great time. And then over in the corner were all these kind of strange looking people you know, all with their uniforms. Remember, what you wear is what you are wearing in order to be accepted. And the irony of it is these people think they're so cool, not realizing that they're still trying to be accepted by the people who are going to identify them with their attitudes intact. You change your hair, you change your beard, you change the color of your clothing, and suddenly, who are you? I thought you were one of us. And it goes from the gangs on the streets to the gangs and boardrooms on Wall Street. What we, what we wear says what we want to be accepted as. And they were all BAI insiders. <laughs> right? Man, what a depressing group. I mean, everybody else was dancing and singing and socializing. And I think they were plotting, you know, some coup or something. <laughs> Certainly they weren't laughing and looking suspiciously over their shoulders, you know, at everyone. And I went over, I says, hey, lighten up, have some fun. We're having fun. <laughs> Could have fooled me. I've never seen anyone at BAI ever laugh. You know, if you did, you wouldn't be considered serious. Isn't it amazing? Serious people don't have fun. They don't. I never see serious people having fun, do you? Has anyone ever seen Dick Cavett laugh? <laughs> I'm not sure. William F. Buckley? It is different. I think he has paralysis of the jaws. If he did laugh, you wouldn't know it. He'd go, 
He would laugh in French or something, you know. <laughs> but of course, he would make us aware of it. How do we feel relieved? Outside of a bowel movement, how do you feel relieved? <laughs> how does relief come, huh? When relief is generally after something that you feel you've survived, right? After the crisis, there is relief. How about relaxed? When are we relaxed? The only time we're ever relaxed is in those moments when we can just be ourselves and not have to be anything for anyone else. The moment you have to be anything for anyone else, you're no longer able to fully relax. Because again, you're projecting, part of your projection how am I doing? How am I doing? Am I doing right for you? Are you still accepting me? Am I still okay? So you're not relaxed. But when you don't have to do anything for anybody, like on a Sunday morning when you don't have to shave, you don't have to you know, wear any kind of clothes, you can hang out, you can take the day and go for a walk in the park, that's when people relax. Or when they're on vacation someplace. And that's why all over America a lot of people are going to the outback. More than ever before, people are going to the Rocky Mountains and out in Colorado and that whole area just to be with nature, where they don't have to do anything except hang out with nature. That's a big plus. But we should be able to do that all the time. We should be able to relax, feel calm, secure, accepted all the time, not just on those rare, rare moments. Balanced and satisfied. When do most people feel balanced? When they're not in conflict, the moment you have any conflict that takes you to any extreme of your own nature or behavior, you are not balanced. If you're out doing excessive exercise, you're not balanced. If you're not doing enough exercise, you're not balanced. If you're eating too much health food, you're not balanced. Not enough, you're not balanced. If you're showing love to the point of obsession, you're not balanced. And if you cannot show love, you're not balanced. You see, it's fine-tuning what we really need to feel completely at peace with who we are. That's balance. But balance requires focus. It requires attention. It requires, it requires a sense of, if this is what I want to be, then I better pay attention to it. You cannot be healthy. You cannot be who you are. You cannot be free. You cannot grow. You cannot change. You cannot develop unless you're willing Focus on yourself. You have to become the priority. If you continue to focus on everything else that's tangential to your own life, then you become secondary to your own experience and therefore imbalanced. Everything else gets the time and attention, not you. So you've been the right parent, the right lover, the right worker, the right everything for everybody else because your need to project acceptance made you create imbalance to gain acceptance, but now you can't accept yourself. So anytime there's not balance, there's imbalance, and the imbalance is always gonna come back where you're gonna re resent this. You're gonna do something to hurt yourself because there's an inner lie, and you don't like lying, and it's not natural to you, 
and yet almost everyone lies. It's not a part of the natural condition. No one was taught to lie. Well, you were, but I mean, <laughs> no one else. <laughs> People were not taught. No one's parents teaches you to lie, but we lie. We deal in half-truths. We deal in deceptions because it protects us. It protects this image that we need to be accepted. And when that's all the effort's going into protecting our false image, then there's no energy going into focusing on who we are. And that's why people feel confused. They're putting all this energy out there, creating something, and what they're not creating is themselves. You cannot create both and win. So you've got to focus on who it is you are, and that's what you should spend your time on. When you spend your time on developing you, then you'll make time for everything that allows you to be balanced. You'll make time for quiet, you'll make time for calm, you'll make time for play, you'll make time for friends, for family, for healing, for forgiveness, for joy, for growth, for spontaneity. You'll make time for everything you need in life to be a whole happy person because that's what your point of focus is. Picture it this way. If you were out on an, in the ocean and you were two miles from shore and you had very little energy off to your side is an island, tiny and desolate, nothing on it, and it's a half a mile away. Two miles is the shore. To get to shore, you have to use every bit of focus and energy and attention that you have. Or you go to the island. Most people in this world go to the safety of the island, and they live their lives creating some artificial, superficial, safety system. They become a part of someone else's support system. And as a result of being a part of a support system, they live their whole lives insecure, always hoping and wishing that something's going to change. The Mr. or Mrs. Right, the right job, winning the lottery, things will happen, things will be better, but it never does. And they go to their death with this kind of quiet desperation, maybe never letting anyone really know it, but they know it. Versus the person that says, I'm going to do it. And that gets back to just doing it. You go for it. But it's like in a marathon. You cannot do the marathon if your mind is on everything else except your running and the focus of your running and the balance in your breathing and your body movement and your rhythm. And that's when the whole experience becomes integrated. So to get to the shore, you have to integrate all things in your life. You have to integrate all your energy systems to make it work. When a person has AIDS in the advanced stage or cancer in the advanced stage or degenerative heart disease and they want to live, they can't live if their mind is focused on their anger, their despair. Why me? Why did I get abused? Why did the doctor give me medications I don't need? Uh, why didn't I have my friends uh, here to support me? No one came to see me. Uh, my life is down the tubes. Look what I've lost. No, they will die in all probability if that's the course emotionally they're taking. The only way a person who is very sick is going to live is if all their energy is focused directly on surviving and thriving. Every bit of energy, every resource they have, physically and emotionally and spiritually, and without the spiritual notion of life, there is no life. It is merely mechanistic. It becomes artificial goals to keep you from focusing on what's missing in your life. So the goal of money, the goal of power, the goal of control, the goal of uh, acquisition. And so you've got all these things, and then you still have nothing. Because once you have it, it's like candy cotton. Nothing's there. 
It was a very interesting letter. You can agree with it, you can disagree with it. You agree or disagree based upon your own experiences. It's the kind of thing that is a very personalized experience thing. But she, it was a long letter and she talked about having been married very early and her husband gave her herpes and when she found out about it, she told her best friend in confidence because this was a terrifying thing. She had never been with any other man and her best friend proceeded to tell everybody including her employer who fired her. Her husband then divorced her and in the small community where she grew up, no one would socialize with her. They all called her and thought she was a whore because of the stigma that comes with someone who has a socially transmitted disease. And she said that every one of her girlfriends betrayed her. And then she went on to do an essay on the nature of female friendship versus male friendship. And now all of her friends are males. She's moved away from that town. She lives in another city now. And she said that how interesting it is that men are friends for life. Whether a man gets married or stays single, moves away, they're friends for life. They never allow anything else to interfere with the bond that they have. Men don't badmouth each other. They don't talk about each other behind their backs. There are exceptions, but generally, they don't. Women almost never talk about anything about with other women except the problems they're having, what they've done with who they've been with in great detail, and other women. And when a woman has a man in her life suddenly, you're out of your li their life. It's like you're a fair-weather friend. And now you're not primary in importance. That other woman's romance or relationship is. Now that's her experience. Yours could be completely different and you could both be right. I found it to be one of the few essays that someone has written that made a great deal of sense knowing this I had for nine years every Monday night and Tuesday night I had a workout group with people in the running group. Uh, but these were people who were training for major races. And I had 12 men Monday nights, 12 women on Tuesday nights for years and years. And this group would change about every six months, so I had a chance to see different people. And it was interesting when men come to work out. The men, it's a different energy. The men are there and encouraging one another. I mean, if one guy's starting to do a lot of curls, everybody gets behind that guy, you know, and really gives him, you know, a lot of energy to do as many as they can. There's almost always positives. When you talk about someone, yeah, this guy did this and that guy did that, you know, isn't that great? There's an encouraging factor. Men care very much about what other men think of them. Men forgive very quickly. You can get in an argument with a guy, and five minutes later you shake hands and you say, what the hell, and you know, it's over. You know, you can get in a fight with a guy. You know, and you know, so what? Okay, you did it. No big deal. You know, it happens. And you're still friends. And every guy knows that. A woman gets in a fight, forget it. For life, that bitch. And, and a lot of, not, no, listen to what you're saying. You're becoming defensive now. I said that your experience could be either or, 
based upon your experience. I'm talking about the women who I met and knew. All right? So you can't judge that. Only I can. You can judge your life and your experiences, and if you've never had that, that's good for you. I'm talking about my personal experiences, and only I can judge that. And what I saw was that time and again, when one of the women wasn't there, they would talk about that woman. Until finally, I asked them. I said, I took the whole group aside, and I said, look what you've been talking about. You're supposed to be here to work out, to get ready for racing, to encourage yourself into your optimal health. And instead, over the last 10 weeks, everyone in here has been talked about by everyone else. Why, if you have an issue, don't you just address it to the person directly, face to face? If you have something you're not happy with, explain to the person you're not happy with something, privately, out of earshot of everyone else, where you can share what your concern is. Maybe it's a legitimate concern. Maybe it's not. But what good does it do to put something negative into the hands of someone else about another person? Does it change things? Does it change the person you're concerned about? It does not. And I said, do you find that a fair statement or unfair statement? You know, I'd like to know. I'd like to know why you're talking about each other and why I never hear you encouraging each other in your workouts. You know? And to the contrary, the two women who never talked about anyone, who came and did their workouts, were always the object of scorn and ridicule. Why? These women, these women don't talk about anybody. They're happy people. They live alone. They don't have relationships that are what you consider normal. They're more dynamic women. They're more creative, progressive, um, very conscious, intelligent, sensitive. And most of the relationships they have are ones that are very balanced based upon their feedback. They're not out there desperately searching for Mr. Right to make him happy. They're happy. Therefore, the men in their lives are men who encourage and support their own health and growth instead of them being codependent. The other women, without exception, were all in codependent relationships and very angry or unhappy about it and would talk about them nonstop. So I suggested, why don't you deal with your codependencies? And I said to one woman in particular, I said, every single week that you've come, you start and for three hours you talk about all the problems you're having in your relationship. And every week, you talk about the problems. Are you doing anything to bring these problems constructively to the person in your life in this codependent relationship? Well, no, I can't talk with him. Why would you be in a relationship with someone that you can't talk to? I mean, what kind of relationship do you have then? Do you feel helpless? Do you feel, you know, you, you're certainly not helpless in talking. If you can talk with all these people, why not talk with this other person? I mean, what is it about him? You've only told us everything that's wrong about him. Is there anything right about this guy? And if there is nothing, maybe you're right, maybe there's nothing right about him, then why be with someone where there's no redeeming value? What is the point of that? You're not enslaved to him. Financially, you're independent. You have your own apartment. Why not just tell the person, this is not a constructive relationship and I choose not to proceed with it. Instead, you continue to stay in a relationship and complain about it. Do you know people like this, by the way? No, anybody? Well, that is not uncommon. What causes us to feel and behave? Let me explain something. Let me show you how you fall into it, all right?
and how falling into it creates reaction and not reason. And what we become in this society are reactions. Our emotions are reactions, our body language is reactions, our temperament is reaction, and that's what causes hostility. And that's what causes inner anger, and that's what causes violence. Not just physical violence, it's not the violence you would commit, it's the violence that you think. Now, wait a second, all right? These are the trigger actions, words. Are you offended by that? It's a word. But if you internalize that, then you become angry. You become angry at me and the word because you see it as meaning something that you were conditioned to believe or you accept intellectually is derogatory and destructive to you as a man and as a race. I could say any word. I could say wasp. But when I said wasp, you laughed. Right? They control the world. Oh, that's rationalization. <laughs> oh, I knew I'd be AI listeners here. I knew it. <laughs> and what about in Vietnam? And 58,000 people and 350,000 casualties and millions of mind casualties with post-syndrome stress who are walking around today not knowing what day it is, not knowing how to communicate, because we turned them into killing machines and didn't know how to turn it off. We didn't feel responsible for that. For whose agenda? So that we could call them heroes, the right war, patriotism? No, because we had to use them. You have to use someone if you have to get something done, and you use the people who are not going to think, but rather going to react. In our whole lives, we've done stupid things by reacting instead of reasoning. And we all have these incredible egos that justify our reaction because the only thing you've got that stands between you and vulnerability is your ego. And the only thing that keeps you from growing is your ego. And the only thing that keeps you from listening to anyone's your ego because you don't listen because you can't hear except what you're conditioned to believe. It's your belief that you hear and nothing else. What is beyond that belief you hate. Try looking at some of the orthodox religions that will go so far as to kill people who do not accept their beliefs. How much of the war in this world and conflict is caused by people insisting that their right is the only right, rather to be right than to look at what is right? 40 million people have been killed in over 200 conflicts since the end of the Second World War. That's as half as many as been killed in the whole war in conflicts. And we think we know something? All we know how to do is to react. And what is reacting? Our egos are reacting. Our sense of being, I've got to be right. I've got to be right. Instead of saying, let's just look at something. Man, how easy it is to get people to respond. And it's the words. But change the words, change the meaning of the word, or take away the meaning of the word, and there's no reaction. So we make words that will cause people to react. So what I do is I listen to words and I just don't allow myself to be affected by them. I go on talk shows and I'll have someone say, you're a quack. I'm not a duck. You're a quack. <laughs> you're a fraud. I haven't sold anyone anything. You're a fraud. You're a, you're, you know, you're pseudoscientific. What's it mean? What's it mean? Tell me what pseudoscientific means. And then they get upset. 
because I'm not getting upset. <laughs> and they get angry because I'm not getting angry. They get crazy. And I'm just trying to understand what it is they're trying to make me feel by what they're saying. You see, it's very hard if you're not willing to play the game. It's very easy if you're willing to play the game. So we deal in these broad concepts, these gross social, political, or sexual uh, stigmatizing concepts. You can take a whole rubric of, of terms and you can cause a whole group of people to react. Think of what Richard Nixon did in his speech about law and order to justify going in there and taking the entire American public as a whole and letting them feel comfort when they saw these people at the convention being beaten who were merely protesting uh, policies in Vietnam. So the average American says, well, I don't feel sorry for them getting their head broken open. Those are, you know, they're not obeying the law. A word, the law. Pseudoscience means you're not scientific. Therefore, I'm not scientific. No matter how much science I have, no matter how many studies I have, I can't be accepted because I'm pseudoscientific. So instead of looking at the evidence I'm presenting, they will try to make me be discredited. You see? It's so simple. It's so simple. And we do it all the time, holding on to certain words. So before you react to a word, ask yourself, can you look dispassionately at anything and look at the context and what it is? Or are you drawing the argument into your own unique and specific agenda to justify your feelings? So therefore, your feelings are reacting and not you, but that gives you a way of venting anger. Have you ever noticed that people will bait you into an argument so that when you get the, you, they, you get angry, they get angrier, and then they say things to you. It's the only way they have of releasing their anger, all the time baiting you, knowing you're going to react, and then they overreact, and physically, frequently do something, and always for your own good. That's what happens with words. Why not just look at a word as a word? If you try that, then you're not going to be jumping all over the place. You're not going to be walking on a thousand emotional minefields. You're just going to say, all right, let's take a look at it. You just put it out there and you take a look at it. And when you see it, you'll have a different way of viewing it. So if someone says to me, Gary, you know, what do you got uh, this person working with you for? Well, because that's a nice person. Yeah, but he's this. Well, I don't care he's that. That's just a word. And to me, that word doesn't identify what he is. He's a human being. I'm looking at him as a human being. You're looking at him as a thing. Think if you looked at women as a woman instead of as an object. Use the term object, and suddenly they become an object. Use the term woman and they become different. Use the term healer, and you look at them differently. Use the term witch, and you look at them differently. From the, 15, from the 1229 until the late 1500s, it's estimated that from 200,000 to 10 million women were murdered in Europe for witchcraft. 
And it's an interesting study in patriarchal order systems. It was the advent of the medical system. In fact, you can see a direct correlation between the growth of medicine and the suppression of women as human beings and merely as objects. Any woman who was older was considered evil and a mistress of the devil because other people weren't living beyond 40. So any woman who was living beyond 40 was automatically suspect and frequently women had to lie about their ages. And if you wonder why women, women lie about your age, you want to know where that comes from? See, things always come from some place because at that time, if you didn't lie about your age, you could be killed. By the hundreds of thousands over 40, it was a death sentence. Any woman who was brought in was always forced to have her hair shaved. Why? Because the judges were fearful that women could cast spells with braids. So no braids, no hair enough to braid. Women couldn't even be brought in to face their accusers. They were put in backwards. Why? Because they were supposed to have an evil eye. Women were paraded and humiliated. You see, by winning something, you first have to, to hurt someone Publicly, you first have to humiliate them. You have to degrade them. You have to make them less than human. You have to make them the it rather than the thou. You see, we couldn't hurt each other if we all respected each other as thou, right? If you are a special human being, if you are a, a kind heart, as I said at the beginning of this lecture, I look at everyone as a kind heart. Until you show me otherwise, that's how I'll view you. I don't care about it. your color. I don't care about anything. It's immaterial. We're all from the same, same creation. But if I were an evil person and I didn't want anyone to trust you or believe you, I would first have to denounce you. I would have to make everyone believe that you were a bad person. And to do that, I would use any method. I would disgrace you. I would try to embarrass you, humiliate you. I would use words that would make everyone feel that you were unworthy of other people's respect or attention. Then, collectively, society says, hurt them, thumbs down on them, publicly execute them, humiliate them. You see, you can't go in and hurt a country. You can't invade a country. You can't hurt a people if you respect them. No one's going to support it. They are part of the thou. But if you make them an it, these chinks, do you know how many times that word was used? Well, when you use the word chink or slant eye, then it's an it. It's like a spider, a cockroach. Then nobody cares. But you can't say those kind and gentle and decent people who have every right to live as we do, let's go out and kill them. <laughs> I don't think any bombing, bombing commander could say that. Do you? Let's go out and kill some children today who are filled with love and gentleness and joy. <laughs> Do you think that was on anyone's bombing run? Oh, yeah, I'd feel good about that. Yeah, sure. No. No, so we, we have to humiliate people. And for 27 years, I have been in that line of facing that. So I know what it's like since I've been on the receiving end. And the only reason I'm still there is because I learned not to take it personally. I learned to grow through that. That no matter what someone else says, that's their perception. 
Maybe they honestly believe that, but if they do, it's because they were conditioned to believe that, not because of any experience they've had with me. If someone doesn't like me, let them tell me they don't like me because of something that I have inter interacted with them with and shared with, not because of something they were told. Oh, you can't trust that guy. He's on, you know, BAI. So what? Yeah? Now, you mean if I was on ABC, I could be trusted? Yeah. Well, that really created a lot of problems because I was on ABC at the same time as on BAI. <laughs> you talk about confusing them, I confused them. I was even on ABC Network for years and years. So I didn't quite know what to do with me. What is he? Is he, is he communist or a capitalist? Uh, is, is, what is he? He never talks about his private life. Why? What's he hiding? You know, is he rich or poor? Nobody knew. Because I chose not to talk about sex, politics, or religion because I know that the moment you start, instead of listening and hearing, people react. And they will always justify their reaction because that's their ego, that's what their, you know, that's their intellect, that's their power. And everybody uses whatever little power they have because it's the only tool they've had to use. You know, it's no different than if you talk with some guy, and as I was mentioning earlier, so many of these guys will go to some of these retreats, and instead of being able to communicate, just sit and communicate with a woman there, you will see 1,300 guys and 150 women and very little communication. Now, I've been there several times because a friend of mine is the chef down there. And when I go down to do some research on the health of people in the islands, which I do regularly because I'm doing a project down there, I go over and I, I study some of these phenomena. I just think it's fascinating to talk to a guy. And I'll say to him, I'll say, look, why are you out here playing volleyball? You know, all the guys are playing volleyball. And here are all these very nice women that, you know, I'm sure that there is some desire for people to communicate, you know, to share some time. You know, you're not dancing together. You're not you know, socializing. You're not, you're not doing anything. You know, this is not a, you know, male-only or female-only area. And the guys, the guys are doing this whole macho thing. You know, the whole macho thing, but super machoing, super drinking, super everything, you know, and terrified just to go over and be vulnerable and open, fear of rejection for whatever reason. And I see this, and I say, this is a part of human nature that's not being dealt with because of that fear, fear of how we're going to be perceived, fear of being open, fear of being uh, sensitive. And also, there's the fear of what the other people will think if you're the person that goes over, the only guy goes over and starts talking. See, we haven't got through even the basics. We're still stuck at the basics, as sophisticated as we think we are. Places. Places will cause, her, cause us to trigger reaction. And by the way, reactions are not always negative. They can be equally positive. How many times have we, how many times have we thought about saying things that would allow someone to feel good about themselves? instead of saying something that will make someone feel bad about themselves. Remember, when you want to hurt someone, when you want to project negative energy, you say something that will make someone feel bad. All right? And that's why in arguments, people say things like, oh, you're stupid, you idiot. Has anyone ever been called an idiot in this room? I know you haven't, but anyone else? <laughs> Lighten up. Have some fun with this. We're supposed to have fun when we learn these things. I don't find anything funny about this, Gary. 
I do. We'll have some fun. It's your juice. We're going to do a hands-on healing. <laughs> Heal this woman, Jesus. <laughs> I, I think it's so important that we learn how words can heal. We already know how they can separate, how they can alienate, how they can make us isolate ourselves and even question ourselves. The moment someone says, here, let me do it, that's all they have to say. If they say nothing else, we already feel stupid. We feel impotent. We feel insecure. Just by having someone be so insensitive to say that to us, especially at vulnerable ages or even as adults. And instead of saying, I'm sorry, but is there another way you could express yourself that, that would be more appropriate? And is that really what you want to say to me? Or are you just feeling some frustration or just some anger? We will say nothing, we'll internalize it, and then we will live with the pain and we'll try to displace it. And that's where many of the problems come that cause us to imbalance. That's where a lot of the drinking, do you think people go out and get drunk because they're happy? No. Do you think people go snort cocaine or shoot crack because they're balanced, happy people? No. No one's in their life making them feel comfortable and confident and whole and happy and lovable. People are there making them feel bad. Don't you realize we have so many people already making everyone else feel bad and dehumanizing people and lowering people's self-esteem? Why not try making people feel good about who they are? It's so easy to kick people in the face. It's so easy to rub people's face in the mud. We do it all the time, all the time, and we justify it. Well, my ego was affected. Yeah, that's it. That's why I did it. That's why I smacked him. That's why I cussed him. That's why I betrayed them. Yeah, that's why I did it. That's why, yeah, my ego. Dangerous thing, that ego, isn't it? Yeah, that's why I, I, I cannot maintain a confidence. That's why if you tell me something, I'll tell it to him, because I'm angry. What's all this about? It's about not having people who are giving us positive reinforcement saying the right words, and the right words are balancing words. Think about what you say to another human being and ask yourself, how does it feel to be on the other end of what you're sharing? And if it doesn't feel good, then don't share it. Think about what it is you're setting in someone's hand. I never gossip. If I have something to say to someone, I get that person in private and I say it to them. And I don't say it to them as a threat. I say it to him as something I might feel. I may not like something someone's done, but I'm not going to automatically start off assuming that that person is wrong. I may not know their motives. I may not know the context of why they said something. I have to give them an opportunity to explain to me what it is that's caused this reaction. So I'll ask them, I'll say, I didn't feel comfortable with what you said. Could you explain to me why you said it and what context you said it? Now, when a person's calmed down, they can explain something to me, which I can understand. I can either then accept it or reject it. But I let it be what it is. I don't take it personally. Christ, if we took everything personally, we'd be a nut job. And we got a lot of nut jobs out there, don't we? We got people that every little word sends them off. Do you know how many times people have killed each other in domestic violence or hurt each other in domestic violence because of words? Remember, the only difference between a negative thought and a negative action is the 
the circumstance that allows a person to feel confident enough to react. Some people feel confident enough because they're stronger. Dominator models are almost always going to physically react. They're going to hurt someone physically. Where passive models won't be physical, but they'll be mental. Or they'll hurt themselves. That's where they'll start drinking or get depressed or eat themselves into oblivion. You see, if we start looking at the actual causes of our social problems, the kids who are committing crimes, the families that are breaking up, the, the, the people who are dysfunctional, they're not doing it because they're getting good input, they're getting negative input, and they've had negative input. If I couldn't be trusted with someone's confidence, then I can't be trusted as a friend. Can you have a friendship that betrays you? Would you seek out, would you have someone as a friend if they said to you, I'll be your friend, but remember, everything you tell me, I'm going to tell everybody else, and I'm going to add something onto it so it makes you look bad. <laughs> would you want your, that person in your life? Now, I know if you're a BAI listener, you would. But, 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 <laughs> no, would you want that person in your life? Would you? What would it say if you did? You have low self-esteem. You don't have any confidence as a human being, right? What else would it say? Hmm? What else? Scared of changing. Correct. What else? You like good. Excellent. You like being a victim. Do you know people who like being victimized? Who walk around with a martyr's complex? The, oh, they did it again. I realize it's been about 5,000 times they've done this. I don't know what to do. I guess I'll just have to go back for more. My shoulders are big. I can take it. Oh, is me. <laughs> Whoa. Well, we have a lot of that that we hear about this country. Just, and we don't have to have that. A friend should be someone that you enjoy being with who enhances the time and energy you're spending together. I'm not with people because I want to argue or fight, no. I want to be with people because I can share joy and love and happiness and, and thoughts and excitement and energy and, and debate, whatever I'm going to share. But I have to start off with trust. That is the basis of all things for me. If I can't trust you, I can't share with you. But I like to assume that I can start with trust. And I generally start with trust until a person shows me they can't be trusted. But I also believe in intuition. And I believe that intuition is there to guide us and to help us. And how many times have we found that someone betrayed us and then we go right back and we go back again, assuming that somehow they're not going to betray us again. All they're going to do is be a little more clever next time. We're not going to know about it as early as we did. I mean, if you really have love in your heart, then you wouldn't want to hurt anyone or anything. You would honor trust. After all, think of it. When I was coming to do this lecture, someone over in the office who was making up the chart said, uh, you know, uh, why were you up? You know, I called last night at 2.30 2 in the morning. You were still here. I said, simple reason. I have to accept that people who are coming to this lecture tonight Many of them are coming from long distances, maybe an hour and a half, two hours, had to get babysitters. They're trusting me with their time. 
They're honoring me. I'm, I'm sharing an honor. I must respect this, this honor. I must respect my audience. If I can't respect an audience, I'm not going to prepare. So I want to be able to leave them with something that will allow them to think. Now, it doesn't matter if they agree or disagree. And I can respect that people can agree or disagree. I don't take it personally. I just put it out there. A person can accept or reject it, just like the radio show each day. People can accept or reject. But the difference is, if a person rejects it, they can reject it because they don't believe in it, don't trust it, but there's no condition for it being given. It's unconditional. How many things in life are unconditional? Very few. 